Chapter 4, The Christmas Feast, Part 2 Never had I witnessed a stranger feast than that which I attended at Uncle Sturgis's mansion on Christmas Eve. That night, the mansion had been restored to its former glory and was buzzing with activity. The grand foyer, which had been cold and dreary only a day before, was now floodlit as if it were on fire. Along the main staircase, servants in cat costumes greeted the guests on their arrival. Some poured at each other or meowed playfully while others pretended to sleep. I felt naked and exposed in the loose garments my uncle had provided, but the ostentatious display of the banquet and the guests' eerie costumes distracted me from my embarrassment. Most of them were wearing brightly coloured garments like mine, flowing tunics of fine wool with elaborate trimmings. Some were donning masks, the like of such I had never seen. One man had fruits and vegetables of various shapes and sizes cover his whole head in the manner of Archimboldo's portraits. Another one wore a stag's head with golden antlers and kept several dwarves dressed as little hobgoblins on a leash. In my confusion, I nearly bumped into someone wearing a two-faced mask. One was happy and smiling and the other studded with diamond tears. In a cage, swaying above the room, someone was dancing, their naked body painted with gold and silver to the slow, spasmodic tune of unseen musicians. I was looking for Rosie or Uncle Sturgis through the din when a cat servant approached me, rubbing his head against his forearms and meowing. Without uttering a word, the servant led me down the stairs to the room where the meal was to take place. It was a vast ballroom whose height rose to three stories. The frescoed ceiling opened into a moonlit night sky, with nymphs and satyrs frolicking around a painted balustrade and looking down toward us with perplexed expressions. A monumental table stretched from one end of the room to the other. Around it were seated most of the guests, at least two dozen on each side, and they were already gorging themselves with wine and food. The table was laden with breads, pies, cakes and pastries of every kind. The servants were constantly bringing new trays filled with victuals. Juicy grapes, sweet plums, honeyed apples, plumped pears, golden apricot, dried dates, nuts, candied red cherries, wrinkled figs and many exotic fruits I couldn't even name. Then came rolling in gigantic wheels of cheese, followed by platters of fish and crustaceans of every description. Monstrous crabs covered with spikes, glistening oysters, lobsters and pickled octopuses. One of the feasters climbed onto the table and straddled a swordfish, causing widespread hilarity. Wine flowed in a gully in the middle of the table, giving the illusion of a river. I scanned the crowd, looking for my uncle, but he was nowhere to be seen, and neither was Rosie. Everyone was stuffing their mouth by the handful with choice morsels, using their fingers and chewing loudly as foodstuffs and juices dribbled down their chins. It wasn't just their lack of manners that I found repulsive. They ate with ravenous intensity, befouling every dish and wasting as much food as possible, as if the delicacies presented before them were nothing more than a mountain of rubbish. 
My piggish cousins, I thought, would have felt right at home with the indecorous guests. My uncle and Rosie were probably putting them to bed. Once most of the dishes were either empty or spoiled beyond recognition, the musicians and dancers who had provided entertainment until then exited the room in silence, leaving only a few percussionists behind them. As the servants cleared the table, the slow and ponderous tune that had lured me out of my room started again. The guests sat in silence, almost in contemplation, as a short procession headed by none other than my uncle entered the room. He was draped in white garments and held a large scythe. Behind him, six servants carried a large board, which they laid down in the middle of the table. My uncle took his spot at the place of honour, raised both his hands and addressed the guests in a language I didn't understand. It could have been Latin, but his inflections and exclamations seemed far removed from what I expected from a dead language. As his speech continued, both passionate and sanctimonious at times, I turned my attention to the board at the centre of the table. It was topped by an array of cloches of silver, the largest one, which surpassed all the others both in magnificence and in size, was adorned with a bas-relief of mythological scenes. Knowing little about the ancients and their beliefs, I didn't recognize much of what I was seeing. The figure of a young, muscular man riding a chariot pulled by two dragons intrigued me. Next to him was a more unsettling scene. An old man, his features distorted by anger, held a chubby boy by the ankle. My uncle, I was certain of it, would gladly explain these symbols in great detail as soon as I'd give him the chance. Unbeknownst to me, he had switched to English while I was examining the board. For it is a terrible error to let any impulse, either physical or mental, languish. Snuff it out like a flame, if you must, and forget about it. Or fulfill it. Indulge in your desire, but do not let it remain there and fester, lest the rot and putrefaction of frustrated cravings turn into perversion and degeneracy. I have slept with temperance and found a corpse in my arms on awakening. I drank and danced all night with excess and found her a pure virgin in the morning. Do what thou wilt shall be the law, and to the uttermost end of every new experience shall we follow it. Even as he finished his speech, the servants lifted all but the largest cloches from the board, revealing a wide selection of meats. A sweet, fragrant smell filled the room, making me salivate instantly. There were glistening roasts of thin slices of raw meat, fat sausages, aromatic tartare, tasty-looking tidbits of cured, smoked, pickled or salted meat. The guests resumed their feasting with redoubled frenzy, devouring each morsel, guzzling torrents of wine. Even I, who had barely touched the food until that point, couldn't resist the delicious smell. The first bite was odd. I couldn't quite place what I was eating. Although the taste was familiar, there was something strange about it. 
It was delicate and flavoursome, between pork and veal. Intrigued, I grabbed a smoked sausage for another taste. Soon I found myself taken with the same craze as the others, wolfing bloody tartar by the handful, stuffing my belly with offal and gnawing on half-eaten bones. When my appetites were finally satisfied, I sat in stunned and bewildered silence. Scraps of food piled up on the table, soiling the white linen tablecloth, and dregs of wine had spilt on the floor. My own garments were stained with crimson smears of wine and foodstuffs. I tried to clean them by rubbing the fabric with some water, but managed only to spread the stain. I shrunk in my chair, my cheeks red at the thought that everyone was gawping at me. But my cohorts had turned to less savoury pursuits. Bawdy jokes were told, with the help of lewd gestures and gross noises, triggering thunderous laughter and grimaces of hilarity. In the dark corners of the room and behind the draperies, distorted shapes indulged in licentious, unnatural embraces. Shadows danced on the walls, and tales of terror were revived out of the mists of time. From his seat at the end of the table, my uncle presided over these feats of debauchery with a self-satisfied smile. His eyes met mine, and he gave me a little wave before walking up to me. How is my favorite niece doing? He put his hands on my shoulders. His touch made my skin crawl. He continued, without giving me a chance to answer. Isn't this better than your Christmas? It sure beats decorating a dead fir tree in your living room, in my opinion. But wait, I saved the best for last, my dear. Would you do us the honor of serving the... Without realizing what I was doing, I stood up. My uncle gave me a little push, nudging me toward the last cloche laying ceremoniously in the middle of the table. I swallowed hard, unsure about the source of my discomfort. Some part of me still hoped it would be a proper Christmas pudding with spices and brandy butter, or a traditional French patisserie. I lifted the silver dome and staggered. The smell coming from the plate was heavenly and made my mouth water. At the same time, bile burnt the back of my throat as I bent forward and vomited in a series of painful convulsions. Under the dome was an ostentatious display of colourful garnishes laid out around the skewered body of my baby cousin. My uncle pushed me aside, grabbed the meat with both hands and struggled to rip the baby's arm in one long, strained bite. In his giant hands, the little body seemed even smaller. He turned to me, a crazed, haunting expression on his face and blood all over. Cheers and laughter erupted around the room as I stumbled backward. I ran, feet fumbling in heaps of leftovers, slipping, stepping in puddles of wine. My mind was blank. I might have screamed or cursed. The whole room whirled around me. Only absolute terror kept me going, and I dared not stop or consider my situation lest I be plunged into raving madness. I escaped through the scullery door, 
I tried making sense of the situation, but found myself unable to think coherently. Images kept flashing into my mind, burning themselves behind my eyelids. My uncle grasping the tiny body, his blood smeared rictus as his teeth ripped into the flesh, his wild, demented gaze. Still, anything was better than thinking about my own meal. Panic danced at the edge of my mind, smothering my lungs under its weight. I fought the urge to vomit again. My uncle and his cronies would be chasing after me. I needed to get out of there or at least to find a hiding place. I looked around and only then realised where I was. The back kitchen was a hellish place. Limbs and body parts were scattered on the counter which stretched along the wall in front of me. Blood was splattered all over the white glazed tiles around the two sinks. A thick layer of bloody dregs and entrails blocked the floor drain. I hardly had any time to process the horror around me before hearing voices nearby. I ran into a cool, dark room adjacent to the scullery. I guessed, looking at the rows upon rows of shelves, that I was in some sort of storage room. I tried not to think about what was in the multitude of jars and pots. My pursuers were turning the kitchen over, moving the furniture around and tossing pots and pans on the floor. I was getting desperate when I noticed a barrel, large enough for me. After struggling to open it, I climbed in, immersed myself in the brine and closed the lid above my head. Squidgy pieces of meat swam in the brine. I bit my tongue and held back a scream when I felt something slimy, with patches of hair brushing against my skin. A thin ray of light appeared around the rim of the barrel. Oh, she can't be in there. There's no place to hide in the lighter. Uh, you were right. I thought she was ready to become one of us. You can say that again, old chap. I told you she was just a child. <laughs> the mother never understood anything. Why should the offspring be any different? Ah, but everything seemed to have lined up perfectly. It was the opportunity we had been waiting for. All the same, we should have butchered her like the other two. I told you nothing good would come of that side of the family. I didn't catch much of what they were saying after that. I waited, shivering in the dark. I wondered, would I manage to escape? How would it feel to be chopped up alive? Was I really alive or just another cold, dead thing floating in brine? When I thought I had waited long enough, I began debating what to do next. I couldn't stay, but would surely be caught if I tried to leave. The agony of uncertainty was pushing me to madness, until the sound of slow, heavy footsteps paralysed me with dread. I tried to hold my breath to stop my teeth from chattering. There was a strange rhythm to the thumps, a kind of laborious clippity-clop. Everything's all right. You can come out now. Nobody's going to hurt you. I hesitated, but there was something familiar and wholesome about this voice. Something that reminded me of cosy winter nights by the fireside with hot cocoa, of the smell of the deep forest, and of snowflakes dancing in the moonlight. It could just be a ruse, but... Come on, let's not linger here any longer than we have to, shall we? As soon as I had climbed out, soaking wet with brine, the man hugged me. 
How long I spent crying and sobbing in the folds of his weather-beaten coat, I couldn't say. But he showed no sign of impatience. He was old. Older than my uncle by a wide margin, but strong and sturdy as an old tree. And when I finally let go, I felt as if, somehow, I had been cleansed. You too, my boy. We don't have much time before they come back. Don't you want to come with us? There's hot chocolate and gingerbread waiting for you in the sleigh. <laughs> Sir, there isn't anyone else. They're all dead. All the children are dead. He put a hand on my shoulder but didn't answer. Instead, he dipped his hand in the brine. Here's a light to guide you through the darkness. Hope nurturing, night banishing, new life giving. A sweet fragrance filled the air, and for a moment I was reminded of early morning dew, of tea brewing and bread just out of the oven. Slowly, to my utter amazement, my cousin William's pallid face emerged from the barrel. We exited through the scullery door and disappeared together into the night. On the morning of Christmas Day, I staggered into my parents' house, disoriented and covered in muck. My mother was back home, almost fully recovered. When they asked me how I had travelled from my uncle's mansion, I didn't know what to answer. My memories of the sleigh ride remain hazy to this day. All I remember is what the old man told me when I asked him why he had come. I come in every house of every town in every country. I cross oceans and deserts, fly above mountains, and visit all the forlorn places of this world. Only to remind people that the birth of the homeless child should be celebrated in every home. And in the darkest and coldest of night, I hope they remember to believe in miracles. For Christmas isn't a summer sun for the privileged, but a winter refuge for the unfortunate and the downtrodden. Tears were rolling down Edith's cheeks as she finished speaking, and neither clapping nor any other sign of appreciation welcomed the end of her tale, only a lingering, dignified silence. I didn't share the crowd's sentiment. I could find some value in Algy's lyrical eccentricities and flights of fancy. Imagination, I had always thought, could serve to the elevation of the soul or some such vague ideals despite being the poor relation of the mind's endless faculties. Even Robert's fantastical tale of ghosts and haunted possession could purport to entertain. There was nothing elevating or entertaining about Edith's tale. Indeed, the more I was thinking, the angrier I became. Whimsy and wild imaginings were one thing, but this was far beyond the bounds of decency. It was repulsive, and what made it worse was my distinct impression that she believed it. What sick mind could conceive of a story so abhorrent and convince itself of its veracity? A passing weakness of body and mind, such as the one I suffered earlier, I could forgive. 
To think that I had believed, even for an instant, that I had seen a ghost. Thankfully, I had the wine to blame for such preposterousness. Spirits, shades of night, and other phantasms belonged in the fanciful stories of my friends, not in a Christmas party. So engrossed by my inner soliloquy had I been that I didn't notice that the atmosphere of the room had changed. I became conscious of the ripple of hushed conversations through the assembly. Some people exchanged nervous glances. The precarious fire cast strange, disproportionate shadows on the walls. My heart tightened in my chest at the thought that something had happened while I hadn't been paying attention. I breathed deeply in a vain attempt to steal my nerves. I would not fall victim to my overexcited imagination again. Indeed, I had already wasted too much time with all these absurd people. I couldn't quite comprehend why my friends would want to associate with such silly, delusional people, but it wasn't my place to criticize their relations. If, however, they decided to spend Christmas Eve partaking in collective delirium, I had every right to take my leave. In fact, I should have packed my bags just after dinner. I rose from my chair, determined to leave the party without delay. I hesitated, half raised from my chair, unable to process what was happening exactly. Montague, isn't it? Are you still with us? I'm glad that you're finally awake. I called your name twice already, and we are all anxiously waiting for your contribution. Uh, wait a minute. What contribution? Do you expect me to make up a silly ghost story on the spot? Don't be daft. Even if I could do such a thing, I wouldn't abase myself by- Silence! Think carefully before you speak. By eating our food and drinking our wine, you entered a covenant with our most sacred order. Break your promise at your own peril and face the consequences. Oblivious to subtle changes in the atmosphere, I strode to the stage. What would I have seen if I had been more perceptive, less absorbed by my own devices? The shifting shadows of an absent audience like leaves stirred by a wind both unseen and unfelt? The silent whispers of the twilight people? I passed through the crowd and stood next to the fireplace. Once upon a time, I accepted an invitation to the grimmest, most tedious and mind-numbing Christmas party. A bunch of dullards spent the whole evening devising new ways to weary my ears with drivel and humbuggery of the highest order. The end. How's that for a story? But the words died on my lips. All trace of anger and self-conceit had dissipated, and a wave of pure terror came over me. For a few seconds, I couldn't do anything but stare blankly at the writhing horror that stood next to me. I fought against the silly, almost hysterical urge to scream. Shaking, I backed off slowly, until I could feel the heat of the embers. All around, shadows were creeping toward me. Some were lurking on the walls, others glided on the floor or rustling the curtains. After the initial shock, 
A surge of desperate anger gave me strength enough to stand my ground. I punched the nearest shadow, but only managed to hit the wall. I screamed in pain, called for my friend's help. Darkness had nearly engulfed the whole room. Was I going insane? What would happen if I let the shadows touch me? A last rational thought flashed in my mind. Shadows were immaterial, but there was one thing they feared. I grabbed the remnants of the burning log with my bare hands and swung it wildly. It wasn't long before curling flames started licking the walls and thick black smoke billowed out. Windows cracked and furniture splintered as the blazing fire consumed everything around me. Chapter 4, The Christmas Feast, Part 2, featured Elizabeth Plant as Edith and Rosie, Kristen Holland as Uncle Sturgis and the Celebrant, Michael Garamoni as Montague, and Peter Coates as Father Christmas and the Announcer. Sound design by Jamie Stoffer from JLS Audio. Additional music by Lee David Cobley from Ataraxia Alpha. For otherworldly, meditative soundscapes, check out Lee's Bandcamp and YouTube channel at Ataraxia Alpha. The Midnight Carols was created by Vincent Robert Nicou. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to tune in next week for the thrilling conclusion.